This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. Mike Smith in for Simi. Happy New Year to you. Here's your hot question today. Are you making a New Year's resolution? Would you say, yes, it's a new year, new me? I'm all over the New Year's resolutions. Or would you say, no, it's a waste of time? Here's how you can vote on this today. At CKNW on Twitter is where you'll find the hot question. Give me a follow while you're there, please. At Mike Smith News on Twitter, S-M-Y-T-H. Mike Smith News on Twitter. I'll retweet the hot question there for you. At CKNW on Twitter is where you'll find it as well. Are you making New Year's resolutions, yes or no? And also, leave me a response on Twitter as well to the hot question and tell me why or why not uh, you're making New Year's resolutions this year at CKNW on Twitter. Also, phone me on the buzz line on that one today. Leave me a voicemail there. We may play it on the show. 604-331-BUZZ is the number. 604-331-2899. This is Mike Smith filling in for Simi today. Let's talk now about the longest surviving orca in captivity. That would be Corky, the killer whale captured in the waters of British Columbia and has been living in SeaWorld in San Diego ever since. Now imagine this, how long ago this was. 50 years. That's amazing. 50 years ago, this orca was captured, a juvenile orca, in 1969 and has been in captivity at SeaWorld ever since. And there has been a long-standing campaign to try to return these whales to the wild, including this particular whale, Corky. Have a listen to this. And you talk about going back into the time machine here. This is a report from ABC News in the United States in 1993. So we're going to go back 27 years now to listen to this report about Corky the killer whale. Have a listen. In San Diego, there is a daughter who has not seen her family for 24 years. Over a thousand miles away in Canada, her family, who last saw her when she was abducted at the age of four. This is the story of Corky, a female killer whale whose real-life dilemma has been thrust into the spotlight because of a make-believe story. Can you go in circles? Free Willy tells the tale of a young boy who befriends a captive killer whale, then helps him escape to his family, who live in the ocean just outside a fictional theme park. The greatest adventure of the summer. Corky, meanwhile, is one of the orcas playing the role of Shamu at SeaWorld. Unlike other aquariums, SeaWorld has successfully bred orcas in captivity. Corky has not been so lucky. Since her capture in 1969, she has lost six babies. Those advocating her release believe Corky's offspring would have lived in the wild and that Corky herself would live longer if freed from captivity. You know, SeaWorld has made enough money off of her. They've profited enough. It's time for them to return the favor and, and let her go back to her family. But Corky's caretakers at SeaWorld are opposed to her release. I see an animal that's happy. And I, I see life in an oceanarium as not being bad just different than life in the wild. Jim McBain is Corky's doctor at SeaWorld. 
He says Corky has lived under the care of humans for too long to survive a return to the ocean. It might be a great experiment, but uh, as Corky's veterinarian and somebody that's known her for six years, uh, I wouldn't really be interested in seeing her involved in the experiment. Bottom line, you don't think Corky should be freed? I think that it would be closer to a death sentence than freedom. This is where Corky spent the first four years of her life, in the waters around Vancouver Island, in British Columbia, off Canada's west coast. SeaWorld says she's been gone too long to feel at home here again, but those pushing for her release say she would be happiest here. Which raises a question. Do these animals really feel emotions, or do human beings impose their emotions on them, something called anthropomorphism? To claim that Corky is happy at SeaWorld, to me, is a, the greatest anthropomorphic error of all time. How can they possibly know what is in Corky's mind? Okay, that voice you heard there at the very end in that 27-year-old report from ABC News is the voice of Dr. Paul Spong from Orca Lab, and he has been advocating for the release of Corky and, and other orcas for a, a long, long time, as you can imagine. He joins me now on the phone. Hi, Paul. Morning. Happy New Year, Mike. Happy New Year to you, too. What is it? How do you feel when you go way back? I mean, there's a 27-year-old news report talking about Corky there, and uh, there's your voice, and here we are 27 years later, and you're still fighting for her release. How does that make you feel to hear that? Well, it, it, actually, that was a great story, uh, and I... I I enjoyed it um, a lot, and along with others that that uh, happened around about that time. But yeah, it has been a very, very long uh, period of waiting for SeaWorld to come around. And they're still as obstinate now as they were right back then when when, uh, when that uh, report happened. So, But, you know, the fact is she's still alive, Mike, yes. and that means she still has a chance. And not only that... Um, things have changed so much in the in sort of the public mind about uh, orcas in captivity at this point. And I do believe that if uh, SeaWorld uh, does come around to the point of view that she can and should go back home, and we have a place for her, um, then uh, they would benefit greatly uh, from it. Because, you know, uh, since the Blackfish movie came out, they've been up against the wall in terms of uh, public perception of what they're doing. I think this could really help them. I want to ask you about the plan there to return uh, this particular orca and others back to the wild. I, I think it's a fascinating idea. But when you talk about this particular whale, as you mentioned, still in captivity for 50 years, yeah. that's a, that is a long time. And now, do you think that that, I mean, is, would SeaWorld turn around and say, well, this shows that these whales are fine in captivity. Look how long this whale has lived in captivity. 50 years is a long time. Yeah, absolutely, and that's their total argument. They're they're doing all all the right things, but you know, Corky's an, an outlier. She's an exception. Uh, she, most uh, of the orcas that are uh, taken into captivity die relatively quickly. The environment is so stressful to them, and the average longevity of, of a captive orca taken from the wild is only about 10 years. So, you know, living 50 years in, in captivity is an absolute exception. And I think it shows one thing, and that is that Corky has immense strength within her. 
strength within her to withstand the conditions of captivity. You know, and if you understand that, that these are acoustic animals, for one thing, right. uh, and that in a concrete tank, they're totally shut off from all of the sounds of the ocean, the natural sounds that they were, that they were born into and made them what they are. Not only that, they're, they're shut off from their family. And you know what? One of the things that we've learned over the years since uh, orcas were were captive uh, first is that uh, orcas live in very close family groups. They're bonded for life. The resident orcas, like uh, Corkias, are totally bonded for life. And uh, you know, you take those two essential elements away from an individual, whether it's a human or or or, or a whale, you're really damaging them. And I think that the fact that Corkias survived shows that she's a she has incredible internal strength. You've been uh, studying these animals for a long time. Do you remember when Corky was captured way back in 1969 in the waters of British Columbia? Oh, absolutely. I wasn't there at the moment of, of capture, but I was there the next day. And I, I saw the whole scene, you know, the separation of the whales into wow. pens and, and lifting them out uh, of, of the water and on, onto trucks and, and being carried away. And it was a, an, an amazing spectacle. But back then, you know, we knew nothing about orcas. We didn't know what their family situation was at all. And it was only after that capture happened that I uh, actually went up to Alert Bay, which is, was called the home of the killer whale at, at the time, and talked to uh, people, fishermen and, and First Nations people about where one might go to set up a camp, you know, to see orcas in the wild. And that, that's how Orca Lab started, wow. actually, back in 1970. But um, the thing, the, the fact is, you know, that if we bring managed to bring Corky back and it's a risky enterprise I have to have to say that right off the top uh, it's transporting uh, a whale uh, all, that, all that distance that's been in captivity for such a long time is, is fraught with risks uh, Mike um, but if she survives that uh, then I think we have, we have a place for her on uh, Hanson Island, not far from where we are at Okala. Uh, also, if you remember the case of Springer, uh, not yes. far from where she was held briefly before returning to her family. Okay. But it, it's, a, it's a fabulous place. It's called Double Bay. Uh, it has a, a deep entrance into it. Uh, an enclosure can be built there that Corky could uh, be cared for. And she would have to be cared for by the same people who care for her now, SeaWorld staff. Uh, she would uh, be cared for and she would be safe. She'd be back in the ocean uh, and her family could visit her. And, you know, what's, what's, what's to lose from SeaWorld's point of view? Okay, so you would you'd put the orca back into the wild and I presume you would have to fence off or have some netting around the opening of this bay? Is that how it would not work? Around, yeah, not around the opening of the bay, inside the bay. Uh, okay. there's a, there's, uh, you know, it, it's a bay that's, that's used, uh, for example, by fishermen to come in and, and, and tie up and for people to catch crabs and stuff like that. Um, uh, but it's a big bay, and it has an, uh, enough space in it that an enclosure could be built that would be at least 50 acres in size, far, far bigger than, than where she is right, right now. Uh, and uh, mm. she would be cared for. She would have to be ha- have to all of the things that happened to her in captivity, including feeding her and doing all these medical things that relate 
right to keeping her alive, which she will claims is such a great success, uh, would have to be continued. Uh, and in the meantime, you know, Blackfish Sound, where this is located, is one of the main thoroughfares for resident orcas coming into and moving around the area. And her family, her it's it's known as the A5 pod now, uh, is uh, one of the most common uh, groups that we see. And in, in, in the wintertime especially, it's the most common group that comes into the area. So Corky would actually have uh, opportunities to interact with her family year-round in that place. And I, I, we don't know what will happen, Mike. You've got to yeah. say that. We don't know what will happen. But I think it's a huge opportunity, not just for Corky, but for SeaWorld. Okay, you heard in the in that historic news report we played there, Paul, you heard a SeaWorld official say, no, you can't do this. If you did this, if you put this animal back into a wild environment, it would be a death sentence for Corky. How do you respond to that? Uh, well, you know, it, maybe it would, but uh, I don't yeah. believe so. I, I think it would be a new opportunity to live. But, you know, if you think about it from SeaWorld's point of view, if they got involved in this and actually uh, Corky was transported, if if she didn't survive the transport, they could say, there you go. We were right all the time. You know, so that would be a win for them. If she comes mm. back and she survives and she thrives in captivity, meets her family again, SeaWorld would be totally involved in that. And they would be able to say, wow, look what a success we managed to pull off. So it's a win-win for them, I think. Okay, what is SeaWorld's official position on the idea? Not a chance. They won't even no. consider it. They won't even talk to us, Mike. Mm-hmm. So is there any hope at all of making this happen for this whale or perhaps for, for other whales in captivity? Uh, well, we, we, as I say, as long as Corky's alive, she has a chance, and we will keep mm. hoping that at some point SeaWorld will have a conversation with us. And if they have a conversation with us, we may be able to turn them around. It, what we want to do is invite them to come to Double Bay to see the place for, herself, for, for themselves so that they have, uh, you know, a hands-on uh, experience of what, what would follow if they cooperated. Uh, but you know, it, it's it's a it's it's a long shot either way. A long shot yeah. getting uh, SeaWorld to to cooperate. A long shot to to bring Corky home. But in a, in a way, all of the ideas that we have are a long shot. But if they if they succeeded, I think it would be a great thing for SeaWorld and a great thing for whales. And to, to your other point, you know, the the whale sanctuary project that is well under motion right now. Uh, is, uh, is, is absolutely in line with what we've been talking about all of these years, building a place in the ocean where captives could come uh, and live in natural circumstances, still be cared for, but still in way, way better situation than they are in a concrete tank. It's a fascinating idea, and we continue to follow it closely. Paul, thank you for spending some time with us today to talk about it. No worries, and thanks, uh, thanks for doing this, Mike. You take good care. What are going to be the biggest changes in our homes by 2020? Will the house of the future protect the environment? And what new technology do researchers think we'll be living with? They'll want all the benefits of modern technology, but without all this cluttered and complex gadgetry that we have today. They'll want homes that work for them. By 2020, all of this will be possible. We'll have things under control without all of these knobs and buttons. And what's more, the technology itself will be embedded in the very fabric of the house and its furnishings. 
So the idea is, once all the clutter of technology has gone, you'll be able to furnish your rooms in any style you like. You won't actually be able to see the technology, but it will be there, doing its job without getting in your way. That means the lights automatically switch off and on as you walk between rooms. And the home learns how bright you like them. A simple command gives you music, perhaps piped in from a sound library. Bark, please. And no more PowerPoints. Plugs become pads, picking up power from anywhere on the wall. <laughs> but there's one area where homes are going to have to change. There will have been enormous pressure on us to cut down on our burning of fossil fuels to protect the environment. This means that energy management in our homes will become of critical importance. All right, welcome back. This is Mike Smith in for Simi. That was a report from the BBC done in 1989, making some predictions about what homes will be like in the year 2020. And I thought, you know, that was not too bad there, talking about technology embedded into homes and furnishings. Yeah, we see that happening. Uh, no more knobs and buttons to fool around with me. Voice-controlled music. Well, obviously, that's going on. Yeah, it was not too bad. Let's check in with Richard Warzel now. He is a futurist. His website is futuresearch.com. Richard, it's nice to talk to you again. Hi, Mike. Thanks for inviting me. What did you think of that BBC report? That was not too bad, huh? No, it was pretty good. Um, yeah. One thing that I've noticed in my own work is uh, that the technology is actually relatively straightforward to forecast. What is difficult is social acceptance, in other words, the way humans behave. And this is a perfect example of that, because virtually everything that they talked about um, is uh, doable, could be done now, but uh, it hasn't gained human acceptance. And let me give you an example, the burning sure. of fossil fuels. We're still arguing about that, um, and although I think that that, that uh, is going to change this year, um, but that's a human thing. It's not a, not a scientific or a technology thing. Turning um, invisible technology, yes, that is absolutely here, but the clutter gone, think about um, if you're not using voice control, think about all the remotes that you have in your living room. Um, so, you know, the, the technology stuff, they were really very good. Yeah. The human interaction with technology, that's always the hard part. Okay. Richard, what exactly is a futurist? I want to get into your some of your um, uh, things that you expect to see in a new year and the new decade dawning here as well. But you're, you're not like amazing Kreskin, right? You're not like no, making... No, no, making no. I'm not a yeah. magician or a right. soothsayer or a fortune <laughs> yeah. teller. Right. Um, I've been called a business futurist or a consulting futurist. A futurist is somebody, not somebody who predicts the future because the future is inherently unpredictable. Yeah. But like a biologist, a futurist, like biologists studying biology, a futurist studies the future as a subject matter. And the purpose of doing so is to help people plan and prepare for uncertainty by anticipating what could happen and offering contingency plans for it. Okay. When you talk about technology, let's start with that one, Richard, and, and some of the things that you're anticipating here. Now, as we heard in that sort of historic BBC report there, I thought it was pretty good when the, when the reporter there talked about, you know, a voice command asking for the music that you like. I mean, that's just sort of bang on Alexa, you know, play, right. uh, play, play music for me. That was pretty accurate. But you're mentioning like, okay, we can sort of see the technology changes coming pretty quickly. 
But in terms of that human interaction that you cause, because now we get we get more debates about privacy and how much the technology is kind of infiltrating our lives, right? Yes, we do. Privacy yeah. is probably the single biggest Achilles heel of technology. Uh, because unless we are comfortable that our information, our personal information, and I'm including things like your health, uh, any health threats you have, uh, any health threats in your background, your bank account, your credit card numbers. So those are all personal information. And unless you're sure that those things are secure, you're not going to trust a lot of these new technologies that come along. And most of the tech companies, like Facebook, are being criticized for not taking adequate steps to protect our privacy. Until that nut is cracked, until we can make sure that people have uh, absolute uh, privacy with their their private information, technology's got a huge stumbling stumbling block to overcome. Speaking to futurist Richard Warzel, Richard, let's talk a little bit about some of the big headlines that you maybe expect to see in the year 2020. So let's start with um, climate change. And I'm just watching the wildfires every day raging in Australia. It's unbelievable what's happening there. Do you anticipate that will obviously be a big story in 2020? Yes, it will. Um, yeah. Australia is, a, is actually a very good early example of the consequences of, of climate change. And it seems, ironically, it seems fitting. I have cousins in Australia, so I'm not wishing this on them. But the Australian government has refused to accept that even climate change is happening, let alone take action on it, because they have a very big coal lobby and they make a lot of money exporting coal to places like India. Um, and as a result, they have pre- prevented any action. They've actually rolled back actions that previous governments took on climate change, and they are now suffering from the effects of climate change, not purely because they didn't take action, because global climate change is a global thing, not just a local thing. But it's, it's the kind of irony that we're going to see over and over again. Climate change, Australia's experience with climate change is kind of an early example of what we can expect in lots of places and that will affect billions of people around the world. It won't always be wildfires. It'll, it could be floods. It could be massive hurricanes like the one that hit the Philippines or the east coast of Africa. It could be, um, it could be violent thunderstorms. It can be uh, cold snaps that last for weeks at a time because of the slowing of the jet stream. We're going to see all these things happening, and it's going to be unpredictable. And there's no one who is safe. So it doesn't matter if you have a lot of money, um, and it doesn't matter if you think you live in a secure place. Everyone is going to be affected at one point or another. Let's talk a little geopolitics, Richard, and your anticipations for 2020. And one of the headlines that I've been following here over the last couple of days is the situation with the U.S. Embassy in Baghdad and U.S. President Donald Trump. Uh, blaming Iranian forces there for uh, fomenting some of the protests we see outside the U.S. Embassy. We see helicopters flying over the embassy there and and Trump making some threats. Is this a situation you're watching closely? And Are there any other kind of flashpoints around the world that could lead to instability or war even? Sure. Uh, Yeah, I mean, there's no question that that Iran has got their fingers in what's going on in the Iraqi embassy or the U.S. Embassy in Iraq. Um, and Iran has no reason to try and cooperate with the United States after some of the steps that Trump did uh, took, such as pulling out of the agreement uh, that limited Iran's uh, research on nuclear weapons. Uh, 
Um, so what we are, are seeing there is the beginning of potentially a much bigger conflict between Iran and the United States, either directly or through proxies like Israel. Um, but there are other places that are hotspots, too, all of them uh, concerning, but some of them that actually don't directly affect the United States. But let's start with North Korea. North Korea is, is threatening to start testing nuclear uh, weapons again and uh, missiles that could reach continental United States. That opens up an, an entirely new uh, kettle of fish in the discussions with North Korea. Now, Trump has said that he's got it all handled and da da da. Well, let's let's find out. But because um, the leader of North Korea has been is remarkably unpredictable in a different way than Trump. So you've got two unpredictable leaders pretending to negotiate with each other when all they're really trying to do is play to their audiences. You've okay. got other hot spots like Kashmir between Pakistan and India that could blow up. Ukra Ukraine, uh, where Russia is still intent on, on encroaching on their territory. So there are lots of hot spots. And, of course, the United, the, Israel is, is always potentially a hot spot, sure. but uh, particularly with their unsettled leadership. So there are a lot of things going on in the world that could lead to a shooting war or something very close to it. It's south of the border in the United States, Richard, wow, what a year we've got coming up with the U.S. presidential election coming up and Trump seeking re-election. What are your thoughts there? Well, I think that there are a lot of things. First of all, he has to get to the election. He, uh, he has been impeached by the House of Representatives. That has to be tried in the Senate. There's an argument going over how, what form that should take, and there's very little in the U.S. Constitution that actually tell, tells anyone uh, so that's going to be a major issue. Uh, the odds, very long odds, are that the Republican-controlled Senate is going to uh, acquit him of those articles of impeachment. Right. But it may affect his reelection. And if something strange happens, if his, he does something bad or if, if he looks bad because of Iran or, or North Korea or something, some other emergency we don't know about, there is a small but not impossible possibility that he will actually be convicted. Meanwhile, uh, it comes down to a question of, of uh, is he going to be reelected if he does make it through to November? Right. And it's not clear that he will. He's alienated enough of the people that voted for him last time that, um, for example, uh, non uh, college-educated women are, have, are turning against him. Many religious voters, not not in evangelicals, but religious voters are turning against him. And he won only by the slimmest of possible majorities and only because of the electoral college. He lost the popular vote. But the big issue, the big potentially explosive issue, isn't whether he's reelected or, or not. It is potentially that foreign interference in the U.S. election wow. could render it unknown. In other words, the foreign interference could, for, uh, for example, in Florida, could make it impossible to tell who won Florida, which might make it impossible to tell who won the election. Um, I, the, the Congress, and particularly the Senate Republic, Republicans, have basically told foreign governments that they don't care if, if they interfere in U.S. elections. And as a result, you're going to see at least Russia probably Iran, possibly China, and almost certainly North Korea, tinkering and trying to interfere with the U.S. electoral process. And that could be the most explosive story of the year. 
How about rising acrimony between generations? And I'm thinking this sort of classic face-off we're seeing here now between the baby boomers and the millennials. I can see this in my own home. I got two teenage boys at home. The other day, Richard, I made a little crack about millennials just kind of joking around, and my 17-year-old son looked at me and said, gave me, the, gave me that line, okay, boomer, and yep. uh, he made a crack of his own about the environment being so messed up by the older generation. I just thought, ooh, you know, it's well, there, it's there. It is there, and it's yeah. not all jocular. Um, you're yeah. going to see steadily rising acrimony. Um, one of the founders of PayPal actually wrote a book about this. I don't offhand remember his name, but um, in it, he he put uh, he b- basically blames the boomers for being greedy and running down all of the investments that were made or needed to be made in the economy. So, for example, following World War II in the 1950s. Uh, we had, North America had, probably the best infrastructure in the world, and now it's falling apart because the boomers failed to invest in maintenance. Uh, The tax system has been kept artificially low because there was this mythology that all taxes are are evil. Um, And as a result, we have have not only the failing infrastructure, but we have um, uh, plans, uh, sorry, policies that are underfunded and not serving people well. Uh, we have uh, the inaction on climate change. We knew back in the 1970s that this was happening. If you go back and read some of the reports there, and particularly reports by the oil companies, they knew what was going to happen. They knew roughly when it was going to happen, and they've been remarkably prescient on, on the consequences, but we did nothing about it. So you look at all these things, and you look at the employment market and the the lack of opportunity for for uh, younger generations, millennials and others, and they there's good reason for them to be angry with the boomers, and it's not all going to be joshing and, and making fun. Right, right. Some of it is going to be very serious. Just about a minute left here, Richard. Let's hit one more here. Medical breakthroughs. I know that's always high on your list. Do you expect any medical breakthroughs in the new year or the new decade? Oh yeah, I mean AI is going to going to jet propel uh, research and medical uh, findings. It is going to ultimately lead to uh, a much higher ability to detect uh, heart attacks, cancer, uh, diabetes much earlier, which means that we'll be able to take uh, proactive um, actions to prevent them from happening. Uh, the searching of the huge amounts of genetic data and and gene expression a- uh, activity is going to allow us potentially to turn back the aging process not completely but in many very important ways so there's a lot of good stuff happening a lot of exciting work being done there and uh, i think you're going to see some real breakthroughs in 2020 it's always great to talk to you thanks for taking the time today and happy new year to you and to you mike and thanks for inviting me oh Uh, As you've been hearing on the news, it's been a New Year's Day without power for a lot of people in the central and southern interior of the province. Let's check in now with Susie Reeder, a spokesperson over at BC Hydro. Hiya, Susie. Hi. Hi, Mike. Uh, Yeah, there are currently about 32,000 customers without power in uh, central and southern interior. And this was caused by a snowstorm uh, that started yesterday. Okay. Are those uh, are there any particular communities that have been hit hard? 
So uh, as of about noon, uh, Salmon Arm in the rural area surrounding Salmon Arm, uh, about 14,000 customers without power. That's a hard hit area. Uh, Kamloops as well, uh, just over 4,000 customers without power in Kamloops Uh and some of the surrounding areas. Vernon uh, also hard hit, uh, just over 5,000 customers without power. Um, Also Williams Lake, about 2,000 and 100 mile, uh, almost 2,000 customers as well. But uh, our crews are out there. Uh, They're repairing the damage. And we know this is very disruptive, especially on New Year's Day when people want to be home spending time with their families. And we are working to restore power as quickly as possible. We've called all possible crews in from their vacations, uh, brought in crews from other parts of the province, and they're they're working around the clock uh, to, to restore power. Unfortunately, in this case, uh, there are a lot of rural areas that have been affected, and that leads to uh, poor road conditions and uh, also challenges with access in some areas, despite our, our best efforts. Um, snowstorms like these can be can be very challenging because at Hydro uh, and also you know in BC uh, we have three times as many trees per kilometer of power line than any other utility. So uh, trees can be very challenging, and uh, you can restore power, and then they continue to fall and cause additional problems even well after snow stops in an area. So that's what we're dealing with those challenging rural conditions right now. Okay, I'll give a big New Year's Day shout-out, Susie, to those BC Hydro crews who are out there <laughs> trying to get the power on uh, for people. I, I know that those crews work really hard, and sometimes, you know, they get called in on a on vacation or a holiday like today, and that's a tough job, going out in difficult conditions to get the power back on for people. But like you said, it can be tough if you've got... Uh, difficult to access rural areas and especially with snowy conditions for when do you expect the power to get switched back on for for these folks well because of these poor conditions we expect it could be um maybe a couple of days before we're able to repair all the before we're able to repair all the damage uh i can't give an estimated restoration time right now for for all outages but we do want customers to be prepared for for overnight outages uh, again, you know, it's preparation. Um, we do advise that year-round people have emergency kits and that they stock those kits with enough water and food after 72 hours, uh, also batteries and a flashlight as well. And uh, we actually did a survey not too long ago, a couple months ago, about uh, preparation, and we, we found that most British Columbians, uh, despite going through the worst storm in BC Hydro history last year in December, Mm. Um, are still not prepared, and so they still don't have an emergency kit and uh, and that kind of stuff. Uh, and right. we just want to educate that that's that's something that's that's really great to have in situations like these, especially if you if you live in a, a rural area. Okay, okay, busy day for you, Susie. Thanks for taking the time. <laughs> You're welcome. Thanks, Mike. As you've been hearing on your news, New Year's Day tradition around the region are the various polar bay swims. Some of the big ones are English Bay in Vancouver. There's a party going on down there right now at English Bay Beach. They got entertainment. They got food trucks. A lot of people down there. The actual polar bear swim at English Bay takes place 
at 2.30 this afternoon. Lots of other polar bear swims uh, going on around the region as well. Uh, Deep Cove, there's one going on. Uh, just about everywhere you can really find one. Uh, Port Moody, Delta, Fort Langley. They've all got kind of polar bear swims going on. One of the big ones is in White Rock. And Global News reporter Jennifer Palma on the scene there. Hiya, Jennifer. Hey, Happy New Year, Mike. Thank you, Jennifer. Same to you. What's going on down there? Oh, man, people are having a good time. Let me tell you, it's a beautiful (laughs) day in White Rock. I actually think we're all having a bit of a suntan. It's it's that warm. I don't really think it was much of a polar plunge (laughs) this time around. But hundreds ran in full tilt into the ocean. And the good news, no anchovies. Okay, tell me about these anchovies, because there's a lot of fear that there are a bunch of dead fish were going to spoil the fun down there today. Didn't happen, though, right? No, it didn't. They actually did a sweep, I guess, obviously, today. But even a couple of days ago when they came down here, they said that a lot of the anchovies had cleared out. And today, you really can't. I don't know. I haven't seen one. And we've walked to the beach. Um, they might be out to sea. They say the seagulls came in and did a good job of cleaning them all up. So people uh, were a little worried they might step on some, but not today. And also, 50th anniversary. So it was nice they could be here because they had to cancel it last year because of the White Rock Pier being destroyed. Right, right. Okay, at least those seagulls are good for something. That is uh, <laughs> that is good to hear. Okay, so you can't see any anchovies. Can you smell any anchovies down there? It is smell-less, if you will. Oh, no, good. there's no fishy smell here. It just smells like ocean. It's actually a beautiful way to bring in the new decade. What would you What would you estimate the crowd size down there? Is it a big crowd today? Oh, yeah, huge. It was packed. They were all over the beach. Easily hundreds, potentially more, but from my vantage point, I'm right at the shoreline. Uh, then it goes up a little bit onto the hill. It's just packed. There's okay. just a lot of heads. I can see a lot of people. <laughs> Jennifer, why do people do this? I mean, when you talk to people and you ask them, why are you down here doing this crazy thing? What do people typically say? They said it was a good way to get rid of those cobwebs from the previous <laughs> year. And for some, it was a good way to get rid of their hangover, I think. Too. Oh, yeah. <laughs> kind of yeah. wake up. Uh, for some people, they said it was something they've always wanted to do. And others just wanted to prove a point that they could do it to their friends and loved ones. <laughs> okay. Anyone going in in uh, costumes? Oh, a ton. Yeah. They all came down dressed up for the 50th anniversary. Um, the organizers came up with a lot of prize packages. One of them wow. to one of the hotels down here, so a really nice prize package for whoever wins the best costume. And they also oh. had planted an iceberg-looking thing out in the middle of the water, and you had to swim out there and touch it. And the first person to do that also got a prize. I don't remember all the exact prizings, but they had a lot. So, yeah, there was definitely motivation to come dressed up. We had Batman. We had Santa. We had a lady dressed up as a chicken because she said her <laughs> friends were too chicken to jump in, so <laughs> she dressed up as a chicken for them. All right, a fun story to cover today, Jennifer. Thanks for coming on. Thanks so much. Mike Smith in for Simi. New Year's Day, and for a lot of people, that means New Year's resolutions. But for many of us, a lot of people looking at their diet. It seems like more and more people are thinking about and including more plants in their diets. Even meat eaters are having to think more nowadays about how to prepare meals for their vegan or vegetarian friends. But where do you start? How do you find some of the inspiration to make meals that are more healthy and taste good uh, when this is a whole new world for you? Now, our next feature can help you with that. It's an interview that Simi did with Desiree Nielsen. She's a registered dietitian. She's been featured on the show before. You may recognize her from many TV and radio appearances. Her new book is called Eat More Plants. Over 100 anti-inflammatory plant-based recipes 
for Vibrant Living, and she spoke to Simi to share a few of her ideas. I love this book. Thank you so much. How did you develop the recipes? You know, these recipes were really a labor of love. I, you know, we were talking before, I have scores of cookbooks lining my shelves. And, you know, not a lot of them are plant-based. So I would get these books for flavor inspiration. um, And then I wouldn't use the recipes because they took 90 minutes or two hours. And I'm not going to do that on a Wednesday night. So the ideas really came a lot from, you know, flavor combinations I read in cookbooks and like a meat recipe or something or something I eat in a restaurant. But then I really wanted to make them doable. Like everything is 30 to 45 minutes. You can do this on a Tuesday night because I want this book to get like batter spattered and used and loved. That is so true. You're right about the cookbooks. It's tough to find one that you go back to for something quick and easy. I think my current one, now this one's going to be the new one, but my current one is America's Test Kitchen Vegetarian Cookbook, which is a really, really good one as well. And, you know, it's with Eat More Plants, you know, the other thing that I really want to do is that this is a therapeutic nutrition cookbook. Too. Yeah, there's a lot to read in here. There is. There's a lot to read. You know, I'm a dietitian. I still have an active practice. And so many people come to me because they're not feeling well. And, you know, they mm. look well, but they're in their 20s, their 30s, their 40s. We live crazy lives and their gut's going nuts or they have this inflammation stuff going on. And, you know, I spend so much time teaching people how to eat, but still we need to know what to make for dinner. And so this and like is now. Yeah. And like now. So, the, you know, as opposed yeah. to like hand selecting recipes from the internet for my clients. Yeah. Now it's like everything in this book will help you heal. It'll help you feel more energized and it tastes really delicious. What are your favorites? Is there one a couple of recipes that really stick out for you in this? There must be. There, there are, you know, it's hard to, you know, choose favorites amongst your babies, but there's a, a lentil <laughs> walnut taco recipe in there because everyone loves tacos. It's so flavorful. You will never buy a packet of taco seasoning again. And I essentially put like a salad on the taco and call it salsa. <laughs> okay, I could buy that. And is that is that key as well where are you making things that people will go this tastes familiar? Yeah, I think, you know, there's there are new ideas in the book, but then there's a lot of like kind of cheeky familiar. Like there's a burger there, but it's um edamame and green. So it's got that. a little yeah. Asian flair Kale happening. And- Yeah, totally. Um, But I also want to introduce people to new things like the turmeric cake, which is actually a traditional Lebanese recipe that I've sort of healthified um, to just show people that you can use spices you don't expect in ways that you don't expect or to use a vegetable in a way that you don't expect like celery root and make it a fritter and make it a delicious snack. I saw the golden porridge in there yes. as well. Tell us about that. So the golden porridge is actually one of my favorites. Uh, and the reason it is is because so many of us eat oatmeal or porridge every single day. And we're Mine like sitting on my desk right now. Right? Actually, and you're yeah. like, yeah, I'll eat this because it's healthy, but I'm not really excited by it. That golden porridge is so flavorful. It tastes like the most amazing like sort of turmeric chai beverage but in a millet porridge. And it's millet too, as opposed to oats. So just getting people to try a new grain in a way they probably haven't before. Let's talk about millet for a second here, because (laughs) I do keep seeing millet recipes and I'm intrigued. What is it? So millet, it's the new quinoa, at least in my Ah, house. the new quinoa. (laughs) Because my family actually doesn't love quinoa. So I was making them eat it, eat it, eat it. And they're like, we're really tired of this. Millet is amazing because it has a similar nutrient profile. It's really high in minerals. It's got some protein. Um, It cooks up just as quickly, but it's actually got a fluffier, weedier texture, almost like a couscous. 
It's still gluten-free. It's still really nutrient-dense, but it's very comforting in my opinion. The fluffy, I think, is a big difference because you're right. There's a couple of non-quinoa fans at my house, and the problem is they're like... It's little pebbles. It's like, you know, too grainy (laughs) for them. So that would make a big difference. Do you think millet is, are these kinds of ingredients becoming more widely available? They are. I mean, we live in a little bit of a bubble here in Vancouver because these things are available not just at the health food store, but, you know, like at the superstore, like at everywhere. Um, So some places they might be a little harder to find, but the goal for me in this book is that they were foods that people could access almost anywhere because I want people actually get in there and cook. Let's talk about that. Then how much of what you can make in this book is sitting in your pantry right now? Like in anybody's pantry right yeah. now? Yeah. You know, if you're kind of the average healthy eater, a lot. The, the challenge with this or the difference with this book is that it's a completely gluten-free book as well. Oh. My goal was to do completely gluten-free and plant-based so that it's as accessible to as many people as possible. And I have a lot of clients in my practice who are gluten-free because I do gut health. So as opposed to using wheat pasta, you know, you're going to explore chickpea pasta or you're actually going to make your own gnocchi from chickpea flour in that cookbook as well. Because are potatoes bad? Potatoes aren't bad. And I think this (laughs) is really important for me as a dietitian. There is no food that is good or bad. Everything exists in a balance. This book, however, is designed to be anti-inflammatory. So eating a lot of potatoes, which are really fluffy, which will spike your blood sugars, they don't have a huge place in an anti-inflammatory cookbook, but they absolutely have a place in a healthy diet. You're so right about the pasta, though, because like I always loved pasta, and then I quit eating pasta for a long time, and then on a night out thought, oh, I'm going to splurge and have this pasta, and boy, did my gut ever feel it. Is that just what's going to happen as we get older? You know, I've been having this conversation a lot, so I'm turning 40 this month, and you know, naturally, I'm having this conversation. (laughs) I'm super excited. I actually, I feel really good about my 40s, but if I'm honest with myself, what's different is my body. And so a lot of these recipes came out of that response to, I can't eat the way that I did when I was 25 nope. and feel the same. However, eating this way, uh, eating the fewer refined grains, being way more vegetable focused, so not just like a healthy meal of a ton of brown rice and some tofu, but way more vegetables on my plate, mm-hmm. make me feel actually better better than I did when I was 25. That is so true. So how would how do you ease yourself into this? Especially if you're thinking you want your whole family, yeah. you can't just kind of start cold turkey and go, hey, everybody, this is what's now for dinner. How do you ease everybody into yeah, that? Yeah, especially if you have a family with, you know, fairly standard taste buds, I think it's really important to go slow and to really have a sense of play with all of this. You know, we can so excited about making change and then think we have to change everything overnight and it usually ends up petering off pretty fast so if you have kids at home particularly look through the book together or like maybe select five recipes you'd be interested in making and then talk with them i want to make something new i want us to explore something new as a family let's go through these five recipes what would you be most interested to try and then get them grocery shopping with you. Get them in the kitchen. I really think we have to, one, not assume that our kids only like, quote unquote, kid food, you know, like white starch yeah. and cheese and nothing else. <laughs> uh, although they do love it. <laughs> Believe me, I know. I have two of them. Um, but also getting them involved in their own food preparation and understanding the time, attention, and care that it takes. And they're going to be way more likely to accept a food if they had a hand in making it. And who wouldn't want to eat healthy breakfast cupcakes with a salted chocolate frosting? My children love that recipe. It's dairy-free, gluten-free, vegan, and vegetarian. Yes, and it doesn't taste 
like all of those things. Because <laughs> that's the point, right? You can, I mean, you can eat straw and that's vegan and gluten-free. <laughs> but no you want to actually enjoy what you're eating. If you don't enjoy it, what's the point? So ease yourself into it. You said start with five recipes and say, listen, over the week, we're going to cook these five recipes. Yeah, or even slower than that. If you're doing two of these recipes every week, yeah. that's phenomenal. It doesn't have to be all or nothing. Work them in. If you need a little bit of extra salt or a little bit of extra sugar to help bring it up to what your taste buds are used to, do it. But don't go overboard. I feel like sugar is going to be the next book of yours we're going to be talking about. (laughs) Everything in there is incredibly low sugar, but I think the thing is, is you have to meet yourself where you're at. If you're drinking sweetened drinks like all day, every day, if you eat a lot of candy, if you eat a lot of baked goods, you might have to doctor these recipes because your taste buds just don't appreciate low sugar whole foods yet. So that's the point then is the transition. So just a little bit by a little bit until you're used to it. And then then you find you won't need it as much anymore. Absolutely. Taste buds do change. And I think people are really surprised how quickly they do.